also you think about teams or organizations, what kinds of mistakes do they commonly made? If I had to put this under one big banner, the big banner I would probably select is they fail to consider alternatives. Hello, and welcome to the Decision Education Podcast, where I talk to experts and share tips on all things related to decision-making. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Sweeney, broadcasting from the Alliance for Decision Education, the educational nonprofit committed to the belief that better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. Imagine what a difference it would make in your life and the lives of those you love if we were all even a little better at making decisions. This podcast is for you, the adults, who are already out in the world making thousands of decisions every day and who want to get better at it. My guest today is Michael Mobison. Michael is head of Consilient Research at CounterPoint Global and the author of several hugely popular books in the field of decision-making, including The Success Equation, Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports, and Investing, and Think Twice, Harnessing the Power of Counter-Intuition. He's also on the advisory council here at the Alliance for Decision Education. Among other topics in this episode, we talk about the importance of considering base rates and reference classes when making tough choices, the overlooked role of luck in the outcomes we observe, and even what ants and bees can teach us about making good decisions. I hope you find it helpful. So let's just uh, dig right in. I'm just gonna say, Michael, thank you for taking the time to talk with me and our audience today. You not only focus on decision-making professionally in the field of finance and teach about it at Columbia University, but you've literally written books about it. And I was trying to think back to when we first met and I don't remember. I remember reading the success equation before we met, just out of interest. And I think it came up in a conversation with Annie, Annie Duke one time, who then said, oh, he's a friend of mine. You know, it's interesting that the, the actual story on the, the success equation in this, this book about skill and luck is I have a section in there where I talk about how to think about skill. And I actually took something from one of Annie's testimonies to Congress, I think, actually, and so that was actually like one of the ways to test skill. So I had this line about there is, you know, you know, there's skill in the activity if you can't lose on purpose. I remember that. Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, so I was like, so everyone, so everyone gives me attribution for this, this uh, little turn. And, and I obviously I documented it both in the book. And I also, anytime people say, I say, no, I got that from Andy Duke. So this idea that, you know, when you're in a probabilistic field, it's very difficult to not think about obviously luck and skill in terms of the outcome. So. So yeah, that's I've learned so much from from Annie, and I also think that the mission of the alliance is just as you, as you point out in your intro, so incredibly important for all of us as citizens. I had in my uh, math classes in high school with the, the I taught an all boys school. The boys had certain days where they'd walk into the classroom, and there would just be a projector up front with the with a fireplace going, and really like classical music going, and they knew that was a reading day. And they'd walk in and there were bookshelves that were just math and science books, just interesting books. And the success equation was one of the ones that was very popular to the point where I had to buy some more copies. The guys would just go and pick a book that they found interesting and read it for the majority of the class period. And then the last part of the class was just to talk with the other guys in the class about what did they learn? What did they find interesting? What questions did it prompt, et cetera? And man, did your book spread around like wildfire. So much so I didn't even know about the the previous work, the Think Twice. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many of our audience members are familiar with either of these books yet, but could you talk a little about Think Twice and what, what you were trying to accomplish with that? 
Yeah, just to take one step back, Joe, you know, you mentioned my involvement at Columbia Business School, which I've been teaching, you know, I've been teaching there since the early 1990s. And, you know, after about five or six years into it, and, you know, in, in, in finance and investing, there are obviously sort of some sets of skills, technical skills that you need. But the realization for me was that a lot of what led to great investors versus good investors had nothing to do with actually those technical skills. Those were requisites to get into the game, prerequisites for the game, but but not the keys. It was really how they made decisions and especially the decisions under under uh, stress. So that led me to a lot of this, obviously this uh, psychological literature and thinking about under what conditions do we do well and what we don't do well. So, so I, I you know, through that, I, I've been writing a little bit about this and my editor at Harvard Business Press Publishing Press called me, Harvard Business Review Press, called me and said, you know, we're doing a, a series of books that are meant for executives that are relatively short about various topics. And we'd love to have you write about decision-making in particular. And the idea of Think Twice was really almost a complete homage to the work of Danny Kahneman and what we now call system one versus system two thinking, right? So system one is your automatic system. It's fast. It's very difficult to train, but in many cases, it's actually quite useful. System two is your analytical system. It's slower. It's more purposeful. It's more deliberate. It's more costly. And what Think Twice attempts to do is run through a number of different conditions where your mind's going to take you down one path automatically. So you're, you're going to, your system one's going to be activated where you should stop and engage your system to, to, to better think about that problem. So hence the title think twice is under certain conditions, you need to think twice. So that was really in, in a sense, right? And this book came out before thinking fast and slow, obviously Kahneman had written a ton about this, but this was really this idea of, of, of codifying situations where you should appeal to system two versus system one thinking. And so a lot of the, you know, so that was, that was where that came out. And <clears throat> turns out that the, this is like a little inside baseball. The last chapter of that book is actually about luck and skill, not surprisingly. And I originally had it as the second chapter because I thought it was so cool and so interesting. And uh, my editor was like, you know, I don't know, this luck skill thing seems a little yeah. bit, you know, statistics. And <clears throat> so she's like, why don't you put that in the back of the book, right? She should keep it, but put it in the back. So I was getting these emails from friends. And again, you have to discount this, right? But from friends and they say, oh, you know, your book was really enjoyed it. But man, that chapter about luck and skill, that was really cool. So I was like, hmm, this is interesting. Like the things people are picking up on. So that, that encouraged me to sort of do a deeper dive on that one specific topic. So in a sense, the success equation is a spinoff from the last chapter of Think Twice and try to, tries to develop that idea of skill and luck in more depth. And, you know, I was inspired by many other writers, including Nassim Taleb, who wrote a book called Fooled by Randomness in 2001. Mm -hmm. And I think Taleb's point, which of course is, is correct, is that we tend to underestimate the role of randomness or luck in, in the outcomes that we observe. But he, I think, came up short in actually giving people frameworks to think about the actual contribution of luck. And so what the, and, and, you know, I've been also at the same time you know, these are pulling threads together, right? Been very influenced by Moneyball. Sure. And that encouraged me to start to read a little bit about sports analytics. And of course, those guys are, that's all they do is try to understand really what effects can we uh, attribute to skill and what effects can we attribute to luck in order to predict future performance. And so 
when you sort of brought those communities together, for me, that, that's a little bit of where the success equation came from. And as, as, it's like a lot of these ideas, even if, you're, you, even if you can't be pinpoint precise in terms of, of disag- disaggregation of luck and skill, just the very effort itself can be extraordinarily illuminating to get you to think about uh, the various topics. Well, I'm glad you bring up Moneyball because we had a great time reading that with juniors and seniors in high school to the point where they, they all wanted to, it was that one in Freakonomics around the same time that they all wanted to read. And then we turned around and used it to revise our admissions process to the private school, having the boys start to design a Moneyball approach to who, who else should be part of this community? Who are we missing? What do you want to add? How are you going to discern that that's what you're getting? And are these interviews tricking us? Are these uh, essays that are being written maybe by them, maybe by their parents? Are they fooling the admissions committee? It was fascinating. And then, of course, that led them into thinking about their own college admissions work or hiring practices. It was the other one that uh, really resonated in a similar way was, I'm trying to remember his name, Bernstein, maybe? Against the Gods. Oh, yeah. Your your Bernstein's book, Against the Gods. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's and fascinating. But so I appreciate the, I think it was chapter eight of your book where you did uh, of Think Twice, where you started on the skill luck thing, but it was actually the earlier parts where I was noticing a trend that you were focusing on what are the mistakes? Like, what are the things to avoid in decision-making? And I wondered if you could spend a little time talking about like when you think about someone who's a skillful decision-maker, when you think about people who are managing and improving their decision-making quality, what are the mistakes that they're avoiding? What are the things you're seeing them not do or manage that they risk to do? You know, Joe, it's a great question. And I, and, and this, by the way, is not only individuals, but also you think about teams or organizations, what kinds of mistakes do they commonly made? If I had to put this under one big banner, the big banner I would probably select is they fail to consider alternatives. Nice. Right. So in other words, we tend to, all of us, you know, let's let's give a really concrete example. There's this idea that Danny Kahneman popularized called the inside versus the outside view, right? So the inside view says, when I pose a problem to you, the natural way we all solve it, and by the way, we all do this. I mean, this is our natural way of doing it, is we gather information, mm-hmm. we combine it with our own input and experience, right? So we're melding this information we've gathered, and by the way, there may be even, <clears throat> we may not we not be getting gathering all the information we need, but we gather information, we, meld it, we combine it with our own experience, and then we project into the future. The outside view, as you know, or, or people talk about this in base rates, says, I'm going to think about my problem as an instance of a larger reference class. I'm going to ask a broader question, which is what happened when other people were in this situation before? Now, it's a very unnatural way to think for two reasons. One is you have to leave aside, you know, sort of the, what you've done, your effort, and your own experience, right? So you, have to, you almost have to discount your own experience and your own input. And second is you have to find an appeal to the base rate, which or the outside view, which may not be at your fingertips. But what I think Kahneman and many other psychologists have demonstrated beyond the shadow of a doubt is that the combination of this inside and outside view is the best way to think about things. So what happens is we don't consider lots of other things that have happened before or lots of other alternatives. So if you're in a, if you're in a team meeting or, or even when you're thinking about something yourself, we tend to, to sort of narrow in on an answer too quickly without considering and surfacing alternatives. And I'll, I'll mention, by the way, you sort of say like this idea of like identifying alternatives and sort of homing in on what, what seems to be the most sensible one. I've, I, I'm infinitely fascinated by 
things like social insects. And you know, one of the great stories is the work of is is beautiful work by Thomas Seeley at Cornell University on honeybees. Mm-hmm. How honeybees find new homes. And so they 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 obviously can test this. They actually take them, them to an island in in Maine and they can really like they can actually mark every bee and see exactly what they're doing and and what they do their task is to find a new home, right? So they're out in a swarm, they're very vulnerable obviously. They need to find a home quickly and bees have certain ideal homes, you know, sort of south facing a certain height and so on, so certain size and so forth. And, and what Seeley does is sets up various homes out there, right, in the environment. And then the bees, the scout bees go out and try to find it. And by the way, they're remarkably good at it. But the, the answer is they test everything. Right. And they come back and then the bees do these waggle dances to tell their sisters, like, how good, first of all, where this place is and how good it is. Yeah. Right. So they're actually systematically, and, and, and they're saying, by the way, not only is this place good, if it's good, they say, you go check it out. Right. And so that right. will activate another scout bee to go. And then they do this thing called quorum sensing. So it's, it's an incredible thing that in nature has figured out that this, this importance of identifying as many alternatives as possible and then winnowing down to the one that makes the most sense given what we're trying to do. So, so to me, that would be the big, the big mistake is that we tend to not entertain alternatives. By the way, we tend not to think when we think about scenarios, we tend not to think about enough scenarios you know, Don Moore just wrote this wonderfully new book called Perfectly Confident, and Don talks about, you know, we, we often will will just not will just not consider various scenarios because you know it, it's it, we we project out ranges of outcomes that are simply too narrow, right? So I've got four one of the manifestations of overconfidence. Yeah, no, it's it, uh, this is part of what I love talking to anytime I get a chance is that it's like five different directions we could go and you know who wrote what and what so i'm gonna loop back in here and do my little waggle dance to get your attention back to some things i don't think that all of our listeners will know what a base rate is so could you say a little more about that yeah thanks for for slowing that down a little bit so as i mentioned rather than thinking about your problem is unique to you what you want to ask is what happened when other people were in this situation before right so so you're gonna you're gonna now draw from uh, distribution of experiences versus your own experience. So let me give you an example. I'll, I'll do one from my world that's actually quite simple to articulate. So, you know, let's say you're analyzing a company, and I'll just make this up. Say it has ten billion dollars of revenues, and you're going to say, how fast will this company grow its revenues over the next, you know, three five years or something like that? Well, you could either obviously sort of analyze the company and think about the industry and its market share and all those kinds of things, and then make a projection. And alternatively, and I guess what you'd want to also do to, 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 to come up with a robust forecast is you might look at the history of all companies of that size and simply ask, what is the distribution of growth rates for companies of that size? And you'll see it's, it's not a perfectly normal distribution, but you'll see something like a normal distribution. And that will allow you to calibrate where your forecast resides within a historical distribution. <clears throat> now, the one thing I should say about base rates is the ap- application varies across various domains. So some base rate distributions are fairly well behaved. You know things like sales growth rates for companies. Mm-hmm. Obviously, things like you know a lot of things that are normally distributed in life, like the heights of people and so forth. And then you, there is another part where it's vastly more complicated, where you have these sort of distributions that are much more uh, skewed, much more power law. Where, where there are lots of small observations and very few large observations. So things that are socially driven, book sales, music sales, movies, those kinds of things, much more difficult to do. But 
But in general, this is a, a wildly underutilized framework. It's interesting, I, I guest lectured for a course last night at, at a college, and the, the student said to me, like, what is, if you could go back in time and give yourself one framework that would make you more informed going forward, what would it, what would it be? And I said, it would be this idea of base rates. I just think wow. it's an incredible concept that carries an enormous amount of intellectual freight once you understand it. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, it's not natural because because you, you've done the work and you have your own experience. And hence, we, we think we're, we're, we sort of check the boxes. And second is the base rates are not always at your fingertips. They, you know, if you move, if I move from here to Philadelphia, you know, I've never done that before. So I don't know what's going on, but lots of other people have done that before. So there are base rates of results. I just am not aware of what's going on. So, so those are that, that to me is the, so base rate is basically a distribution of past experiences given the same set of set initial circumstances and just understanding how things have unfolded for other people can be very helpful to understand how things might unfold for you or your, your object of interest. How do you go about figuring out what's the right category or proxy that you should be drawing your base? Like you mentioned the company size and I'm thinking a lot of our listeners are a lot of them are working in business, a lot of them are education, and a lot of them just think about this for their personal lives. So you come across a decision in your personal life, you know, should I, uh, should I buy or rent? Like, is, is the thing that's pressing me as the question a safe choice for the category, or do I need to do some work to figure out what's the appropriate base rate I should be looking at? Yeah, I mean, that case, and Joe, you're, you know, this is, there, there is a little, there's a little bit of a devil lurking in the details here, right? Because yeah. there's this, this idea of reference class. What's the appropriate reference class? Right. And, you know, you, here's the tension you're trying to balance. One is to have a large enough reference class that, you know, there's some robustness to it, right? So statistically significant, but it's also narrow enough that it actually uh, is actually aligns with what you're specifically looking at. So that's the challenge. By the way, you know, Danny Kahneman wrote an article in, I think it was Dan Lavallo in the Harvard Business Review, and they talk about this. So there's, a, and it's actually in Think Twice, we have this as well. So there's like a four-step process for going through how to think about applying base rates or reference classes. And like you said, one is trying to get the right balance between specificity and general generality. And then the other one is just looking at the nature of that distribution itself. So as like I said, there's a continuum from things that are very clean and simple to things that are very skewed and power law like, and that's going to be a lot more difficult to do. So whereas the application of base rates is, or, or, or reference class stuff is, is not perfect, what I would come back with is I think it's a vastly underutilized tool, right? So there's a ton of application that's not being used today. So without getting into the advanced trickier states, let's start with that. <clears throat> the other thing I'll mention is, and you might know this, you might be closer to this even than I am, but you know, I've spoken with Phil Tetlock and Bar Mellers a fair bit over the years about some of what they did with good judgment. And these are the, this idea of these super, people who are making really good forecasts, these so-called mm-hmm. super forecasters. And they were, they were trying to measure the impact of training. And so they would, of course, give some people training, other people no training for control. And what they found was the training did improve people's accuracy of their forecasts. And it turned out they found the thing that was most important in that training was basically this, is this idea of teaching them about base rates right. and, and reference classes and uh, just introducing people to this way of thinking and some of the basic tools improved their forecasting acuity. So, so again, without getting into the advanced, trickier aspects of this, there's just a ton 
that all of us can use. And again, business and sports and investing, these are all very fertile areas for this. But like you said, even other domains, there's going to be a lot there that we can work with that's useful. So so I, I just think it's a, a very big idea. I I absolutely agree. There's 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 a lot to mine there. I'm conscious of your time. So and I said that you had kicked off four or five things in my head. So another one that you mentioned that I was hoping you could say more about is this idea of exploring versus exploiting. So these bees are going out and they're looking at all these alternatives. You know, you could just keep going out looking at more and more alternatives. How do you how do you think about when to shift from an explore to an exploit uh, strategy? And it could be in your work or in your, you know, your advising clients or however you want to go at that. So Joe, you're like, you're reading my mind here, right? Because I, I have a list of topics that I want to write more about. And the explore exploit thing is one of them. By the way, there's a there's a literature on this in computer science. Yes. Multi, multi-armed bandit problem, but let's let's not go into that. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about social insects again. Right? Yep. <laughs> Tell you another great story. And this is ant, ant foraging. So just to be clear, just to, just so we're all on the same page. So exploitation would be, and we'll use ants as an example. You have a nest of ants and there's a food source. Exploitation would be the ants go out, find the food source, and then they just basically focus their attention on getting as much of that food into the nest as possible, right? And the way the ants do this is they go out, they, they basically go out randomly, but they're laying pheromone trails as their means of communication. Once an ant finds the food, they come back, that trail gets a little stronger, the next ant comes out senses that and so that reinforces it and as these they travel the same path that becomes a very strong pheromone trail and then so that's how they figure out how to do that so <clears throat> that's <laughs> what ants do that's really cool but what's interesting is when the when the scientists were studying ants you know and because if you actually just watch ants in, the, in your backyard in the summertime right you're like they're, they're kind of doing crazy stuff all the time <clears throat> and so the, the scientists were studying them and they would find out that the ant some ants would just there you know the pheromone trails there to the food source and they would just peel off like for reasons that, you know, like, and so then they they got much more scientific about studying that rate of peeling off. And it turns out there's a mathematical probability. Right. And here's the thing that's absolutely beautiful, Joe. This is the thing that's so cool. It turns out that probability of peeling off the path is a function of the rate of change in the environment. Right. So when the environment does not change rapidly, the ants go for mostly exploitation and very little exploration. Mm-hmm. When the rate of change is rapid, they know that that food source may be exhausted quickly and there may be other food sources that are popping up around them. They're going to allocate more resources towards exploration. Right. So to me, that's the broad concept, which is, and, and obviously measuring your rate of change in your environment is not easy. Obviously, in things like business, we try to think a lot about this. Is this industry stable? Is this industry changing? So on and so forth, right? Disruption. But that, to me, is the guiding force, is to think about how do we think about rate of change in the environment? And so that's to, that is ultimately. So zero change in the environment. And by the way, if you go to ecosystems in, in, in our world today, there are some environments that are extremely stable. And you'll see almost all those species are all about exploitation. They do very little exploration. Mm-hmm. You'll find others, other uh, ecosystems that are rapidly changing. And you'll see the species there that adapt are very big ex- explorers. They do very little exploitation per se. And so there's, and there's everything in between. So, so that's a part of what I'm, I'm challenged with working on is to say, can we create a framework beyond that qualitative statement, which I think makes sense. Can we create a framework to think about what is that, uh, optimal is not the right word, but what is sort of the best 
mix between those two things. So I think that's exactly right. And I'll just say the other thing is that there's some other really interesting dimensions, right? Which is one is <clears throat> there's a there's a huge issue with age. Exactly. You know, right. when, you're, when you're young, right. when you're young, you know, exploration is much more interesting than exploitation, right? So you want to try out the new restaurant, meet new people, and so on and so forth. And as you get older, right, well, your payoffs are much more finite. And there are some days I feel that very much. Then you say, well, I'm just going to exploit. I'm, I'm just going to just go to the restaurants I like and hang out with the people I like and so forth. And I'm not going to bother. Yeah. I'm not going to bother with this exploration because the, the payoff may not be sufficient. So, so there's another really t interesting temporal component, which is where you are in your life cycle. And again, that could be not just humans, but, all, but, but also where you could be. It could be the life cycle of the ant colony, which obviously is much longer than any particular ant, but also could be. So I love two by twos for almost anything, right? A quick little grid. And the one that jumps to my mind is personal versus environmental on the one axis and constant versus high change on the other. And so if you're, you know, if you're relatively young, then you're going to see that the environment, everything seems like it's changing to you. And it's not a surprise that you're in the explore for a lot of things. You know, dating's the easiest example. But I even think about when I go to a city for, for the Alliance, when I travel somewhere, the first couple of nights there, I'll try a different restaurant every time. But if I'm not coming back for a year, my last night in town, I'm eating at the restaurant that I like the best so far. I'm not going to go exploring again. And I, I don't know that that's the optimal rate, but it does make for a pleasant evening the last night in town. I think that'd be a fascinating topic for you to to dig into for people. You know, I'm thinking of the book Swarm. I don't know if you saw that one yet. And the author's not coming to mind so quickly. It's it's about how humans basically are social insects in the sense of the way that we we behave. Yeah, you probably have it on your shelves there. So for oh, those who can't yeah. see, Michael's going to this enormous set of bookshelves behind him <laughs> and digging up. No, no, I don't have it. I, I, the one I was thinking about was, was, was this one, but that's not, this is, yours is just swarm. This is the perfect swarm. So that's different. No, that's different. Yeah, that's about <laughs> complexity, which is also a lot of fun and um, a whole different topic. So going back to the, um, the things you kicked off before, the beekeeping one cracked me up because I don't know, I don't think I mentioned this to you, but I started keeping bees during this, this pandemic. I'm home more and we decided let's go ahead and try it. But we lost all our first colony, but have you ever tried? I never tried them. I'm, I'm very allergic to bees, and oh, so that. uh, that's not like that would not be an ideal. But I, I'm com I'm completely fascinated, and I would just say for anybody, any viewers or listeners who are interested, I mentioned Thomas Seeley at, at Cornell University, who of, of whom I'm just a huge fan, and he wrote a beautiful book. And Joe, if you don't have this, you'll like you'll really like this. It's called Honey Bee Democracy. Awesome. When I say a beautiful book, you know, Tom is not only a very careful and thoughtful scientist. He's a beautiful communicator, both visually and in, in written and verbal communication. So it's a it's a wonderful, gorgeous book, and uh, you'll really enjoy it, especially with your beekeeping. Activity. Oh, I appreciate that. So you pivoted a little bit by taking what was at the end of that book and turning it into a whole new rich area of, uh, of inquiry around a skill versus luck. When you think about specifically about decision making. Base rates are obviously one. Consider that. What are some other things that are in the skill category for you? What are things that people can do that are relatively light lifts that would, if they're not already doing them, likely improve their decision-making quality? You know, I, I first had the opportunity to meet Danny Kahneman, <clears throat> which was, of course, a thrill in uh, yeah. 2005. And I asked him that exact question. 
So I don't think I can do better than <clears throat> telling you what Danny Kahneman told me, which was keep track of your decisions. And so when you make an important decision, not, you know, not, you know, what did you eat for lunch yesterday, but an important decision, write down why, what you decided, why you decided, what you expect to happen. And if there are specific components that you can express with probabilities, write down those probabilities. So you're keeping it, and we're not talking about here writing war and peace. We're talking about a paragraph, paragraph in your own hand about a particular decision and then keep track of those decisions. And I think, Joe, to your point, and, and this is something that, you know, I think in, in our, in our you know, just talking to Annie Duke over the years, that this is something that's obviously completely intimately understood by poker players, is that when you are in a probabilistic field where the outcomes are determined by both a skill component and a luck component, you have to focus on process. Nice. If it's a yeah. pure skill field, you know, chess, you know, I could play Magnus Carlsen a hundred times in a row and he's going to beat me a hundred times in a row. And those outcomes are all we need to know that his process is better than mine, right? But in other probabilistic fields, it's conceivable that I could beat Annie Duke in one hand of poker. It's not conceivable I could beat her over time, but it's conceivable that I could get lucky and beat her once, right? And so that the beauty of documenting the quality of your decisions is it allows you to focus on the component that you can control, which is that skill component, right? That you're making the right decision and recognizing the outcomes in the short run will not be uh, necessarily perfectly correlated with the quality of your process. But over the long haul, those outcomes will be quality uh, correlated with the quality of your process. So to me, the biggest thing is to document <clears throat> your decision-making process and try to uh, improve that. Now, there's a, there's a sort of spin-off component, which is this idea of calibration, right? So usually when you have a view of the world that's different than others, you have a probability assessment of something. It could be a magnitude of an outcome, but usually a probability assessment that's different than others. And so you, you can imagine just an XY chart that on the X-axis would be the subjective probability, what a probability you've assigned. And the Y-axis would be the actual outcome of that, of that class. So that's the objective outcome. And then when you've gathered up a lot of your, your forecasts, you can start to plot where you lie on that, on those, where your particular decisions lie on that graph. And the ideal is to be on the 45 degree angle line, right? So that when you say something is an 80% probability, it actually happens 80% of the time, 30% probability happens 30% of the time. <clears throat> and what I'll just say on this, that what's fascinating to me is that when people keep track of their forecasts and they do it in a way that's probabilistic as I just described, and they get feedback on those outcomes, it turns out people get better at their calibration. They get right. better at this. And uh, you know, it's very famously studied with weather forecasters, right? Where they're getting immediate, timely, mm -hmm. and accurate feedback. It's obviously more difficult in other domains, but that's that's another thing. It's just that's why. So keeping track of the decisions and then with with an eye specifically toward improving your calibration so that you're making accurate or more accurate probabilistic forecasts. And when you combine those two things together, and, and again, it sounds like it's super onerous, but it's actually not that bad, right? If you're just writing down your, you have a notebook, you know, go to, go to a local drugstore, buy a notebook for $3 and just document your decisions, write down those probabilities, and then say every few weeks, gather up your probabilistic forecast, see how the outcomes turned out, and then build up a little database. You can, you can do this in Excel very quickly. You can start to get, you start to measure your calibration and just the exercise of doing all that, I think, will make people much better without, again, without a ton of additional apparatus, no fancy software, nothing, you know, this is stuff you can do with a notebook 
and maybe a simple spreadsheet and you're, you're going to be in business. So my sense would be that the majority of the benefit for most people who are new to trying to improve their decision quality is around the intentionality of it and the shifting over to system two, like we were talking about before, that they're going to be reflecting and actually taking into consideration things like base rate. Uh, it's not so much that they're getting rich feedback from the environment on lots of repeated and similar decisions and therefore improving their calibration from, you know, they thought it was 30%, it's really 35. It's the fact that they're even in the right area with regard to 50 percentile, you know, they're down below it somewhere, like that they're actually even considering it. Let me, I'll jump in on that because you're, you're exactly right about that. And I'll just give you a very concrete example of that. So when I was in an investment firm and we had an investment committee we would have people come and make presentations on, on specific, you know, kinds of investments they want to make. And, you know, at the end, they would say, here's, you know, how, how is this going to turn out? And they would have to say, we expect these things to happen. And historically, they would just do this generally, like we expect them to pay a dividend or we expect them to sell the business or whatever. And so we, were, we said, well, all right, well, we want you to give a probability for those things, right? So we want to give them more specificity. And it was just remarkable just asking people to assign a probability. Just that act, as you point out, compelled sort of a, a much more thoughtful process, which then led to a much more, you know, much richer discussion around the issues. So you're right. Probably the calibration is sort of level two. But level one is sort of just getting people, when you pose the question, it compels them to think about it in a way that that is much richer than they would have otherwise. And again, just mostly just slowing down and quantifying sort of things that they're saying that are, you know, that, that they hadn't quantified before. So I, I very much appreciate the time you've given us so far, Michael. I'm wondering if I can finish with one last question for you before I know you have to run, which is if we are successful at the Alliance, if we get decision education to be something that every young person is not only introduced to, but actually develops some skill through during their K-12 experience, and I say if, I think it's when, what would you expect to see different about our society or about individual lives a generation or two from now? If, if everybody knew about base rates and keeping track of their decisions and focusing on the process as opposed to outcome and the other things that we talked about today or that are related to critical thinking that we've been exploring with our fellows program, what what do you imagine the world? So you're a visitor to the world. It's 50 years from now. A whole generation has been raised in the United States with decision education. What looks different to you? Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of there'd be a lot of very good things. And by the way, even in our sort of political and, and even the business world, but certainly a political domain, I think people would be more scientifically literate. That would be very helpful. They're mm -hmm. able to understand and parse evidence and make the appropriate decisions as a consequence. I think people individually hopefully could make better personal decisions for themselves. You know, the COVID, the COVID experience was very interesting. We saw some people get a little bit of money often just from the government and going into the stock market and trading, you know, options and stocks and so forth. You know, the, that movie hasn't ended yet, but we've seen this movie many times yeah. and that movie tends not to end well. So hopefully some of that, some of that would be uh, offset to some degree. I will say that I'll tell you there's one aspect of this that I struggle with, which is interesting in, on, on base rates. You know, it was interesting. I was at an academic conference. They sometimes let outsiders who are clueless into these things just hang out. And it was, uh, it was actually on behavioral, it was like behavioral strategy. 
So these are these are professors who study competitive strategy for companies, mm -hmm. and they have an extra wrinkle like what are the behavioral elements of that. So it's a you know it's a fascinating topic, right? In general, and they invited me to give a talk, and we were talking about you know I talked about base rates and luck and skill and so forth. And it turns out that there was a special guest that day there, and that was Danny Kahneman, right? And so we had this very interesting and spirited discussion where Danny went into a big company and he said, you know, here's this thing on base rates and gee, most new products fail. And, you know, you guys got to be aware of that and so forth. And, and the, you know, the head guy from the company said, you know, professor, with all due respect, if we actually believed everything you just said, we would never launch a new product. And then we would never have these five new, really awesome new products that we've launched. Yeah. Right. And so there's this interesting balance just in general between optimism Right. And this idea that what, you know, we all have little psychological bubbles around our heads and we think we're a little bit better than we actually are. And what's good about that from a motivation point of view is it gets you out of bed in the morning. Right. If you're an entrepreneur and you actually know the base rates of failures for entrepreneurs, you might never try in the first place. Right. So there's this really interesting uh, tension, I think, between. We want that optimism at the global level. We want people to try out stuff at the global level. But if you're making an investment, you know, investing in this, you have to be more measured that you know the aggregates aren't going to work out. I'll tell you one very quick story on this that my oldest son, when he was in university, was tempted to apply for this thing called the Teal Fellow. So Peter Teal's got this fellowship. And yes. He's like, you know, college is now for everybody. And if you have a really cool idea, we'll give you, and I think it's two years, and it's like $100,000, and you drop out of college, and you work on your cool project to change the world. You know, if it doesn't work out, you go back to school. It's not a big deal, and so forth. And they, they have about 20 Teal Fellows per year. And my son said, you know, Dad, I'm thinking about, I've got an idea, maybe I'd like to apply for this Teal Fellow and drop out of college. <laughs> and so I was thinking to myself, you know, this at the high level, this idea for 20 people to do this and probably two of them will succeed is completely awesome. Like, yes. I think that's great. And, you know, and, th and there have been great outcomes, this, but I'm like, but I'm not sure I want my kid to be part of that, right? Because <laughs> he's most likely going to be the 18 of the 20 that don't get anything done. And he's like, you know, so it's just funny. I had this sort of funny tension, like in my own sort of brought it home for me, like, okay, so I, I get the aggregate, but, but the, the micro and macro, right? But but I just I just look look I think the world would be a better place because people allow people to make better decisions and I think ultimately too that it allows to understand others better you know I, I think yeah. it would contribute a lot to empathy that that we even today you can see this I mean people make decisions you know there's a wonderful book called scarcity I mean people make decisions under a lot more duress than most of us go through every single day and understanding, you know, if they're better equipped to make better decisions and so forth, that's good. But it also allow people, allows us to understand the decisions of others more effectively. I think that's also a huge positive, just societally. So I, I look, I think, it's, obviously, I think the world would be a much better place. And hopefully we'll continue. I, I just think the mission of the Alliance is so extraordinarily important. And again, there's a, there's a, there's a challenge of just a little bit of crowding out, which is, you know, I think that we a lot of the incentives may encourage educators to to achieve certain objectives that are let's say short term. They're important in some ways, but these broader life skills, these skills mm -hmm. are important as part of a global as being a global citizen. They can get crowded out, and that's that's a challenge. So so how do we introduce these these really incredibly important ideas to allow young people from the get go right to make better, as you said, personal and professional decisions? So I agree. I, I'm sure the world would be a better place. 
Well, so thanks. Uh, and we have to come back to this topic at another time about the idea of what's good for the individual versus what's good for society. I have in mind Stanovich's uh, The Robots Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Have you read that yet? Yeah, of course. And this this thing that, you know, what we're doing may be very good for our genes and it may be very good even for the species, but it might not necessarily be in the best interest of the individual. And I am curious about the question of how much optimism should someone have so that their their lives are good lives versus, you know, uh, better calibration with reality maybe and the expected outcomes of things. I think it's a fascinating topic. I'd love to chat with you more about it or whatever you're working on when we connect next. Mike, thank you so much for this. This is a, pleasure, Joe. This is great for our audience to be able to hear how you're thinking about all these things and how you're continuing to apply them to the, the real world. Much appreciated. My pleasure. A huge thank you to Michael. You can find Michael on Twitter at M-J-M-A-U-B-O-U-S-S-I-N. At the Alliance for Decision Education, our mission is to improve lives by empowering students with essential decision skills. We are building a national movement to ensure decision education is part of every student's learning experience. Through this podcast, we are raising awareness about the movement, but we need your help. Please share, tweet, and sign the petition on our website, alliancefordecisioneducation.org. If there is someone you think would be great for us to interview for a future episode, Or if you have a question about decision-making that you'd like us to explore on the podcast, email us at connect at allianceforddecisioneducation.org. Also, ratings on Apple Podcasts are greatly appreciated. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite app so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you, and I hope you join us again soon.